Hi there, everybody. I am Chase Raz, and this is Multi-New Media. I'm going to be speaking with Chris Ayers today, and we have a pretty interesting topic that I think is um, something that if you're on the technology side, you can definitely relate to. But then again, no matter what your profession is, the topic that we're talking about today is fairly uh, understandable and fairly human. A lot of us feel maybe like we're sort of faking it, right? We have this imposter syndrome. Well, our, our question today is going to be, what makes someone a developer? What does it take for someone to be a developer? Do you have to program in a particular language or set of languages? Do you have to have a particular uh, competency level? Do you have to have been employed in a certain type of job with a certain type of title for a certain number of years? Right? What is it that makes someone a developer? And all too often, we're quick to dismiss people and say, uh, you know, you think you're one thing, but you're probably not. Now, for some people, it's really clear, cut, and dry. They went to school for uh, technology or programming. They have a job in programming, and they have a, a uh, basically a pretty good CV or resume to, to stand upon. But the rest of us, if we're programming applications in our spare time after work, or if we have an idea for some type of uh, productivity software, or if we're just integrating, you know, really kind of random components in order to get something done maybe integrating some type of feeds online or integrating different widgets or integrating different um, different add-on packages to uh, to our software at work, right? It, does this make us a developer? And if we don't know a certain core key bit of information, maybe we feel that we're bad at math or we feel that we're bad at logic, what is it that we can do mentally or otherwise in order to get ourselves in the mindset of being developers. And again, this topic isn't just for those of you who are in technology. If you're in business, if you're in education, if you're in media, if you're in marketing, any of the fields that we target, being a developer in the 21st century is so important and having a developer mindset, even if you're not actually working with code, is so utterly important and fundamental that we think today's show is going to be excellent for you. We'll take a relaxed pace through everything. Don't worry, this isn't some type of intervention or we're not preaching from the from the soapbox. But we do want to just expose more people to this concept if possible. To answer the question of what does it mean to be a developer? And what does it take for someone to be considered a developer? I'll be right back after the break and we'll get this conversation kicked off.
All right, welcome back. I'm Chase Raz, and with me is Chris Ayers. And today, we are talking about what it means to be a developer. So, first of all, hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. How's it going, Chase? Pretty good. Pretty good. Enjoyed talking to you before the show a little bit today. And um, I'm excited to be asking you this question because in our in our pre-show conversation, we didn't go into this too much. But I am curious, from a developer like you, what does it mean? All right, if I just ask that first question, what does it mean to be a developer? <laughs> Where's the first place your mind goes, knowing that I have a whole list of questions to eventually ask you over the course of the show here? Um, I don't know. I, get, I, I usually, when I tell, talk to people about what it means to be a developer, what a developer or programmer or software architect type of person does, is I usually try to say it's like, Doing a puzzle and writing an essay, you know, all at the same time, because you you have to juggle a lot of things in your mind, and you got to see how pieces fit together. But um, I don't know if that's the right answer. I mean, I've been programming, uh, honestly, I've been programming since about second grade, uh, but I didn't really start getting serious in it until about fifth grade or sixth grade, <laughs> and it's something I've done my whole life. So it's something I've always wanted to do and loved to do. And how many how many professional years are you in to development now? Would you say Profe- professionally? Yeah, let's let's say uh, let's say post college. Well, I was programming professionally in college, okay. so I, I started. I got my first professional development job around ninety nine. Okay, so, so so at least a good sixteen years in on the commercial <laughs> side. Yeah, that's why I'm a senior developer now at <laughs> a relatively young age, just because. I'm passionate about this stuff. I, I study it in my free time. I I program Raspberry Pis and uh, spare computers in my office. I dabble in in code and software projects and occasionally try to write games. I, I, I you know I this is one of my hobbies as well as my profession. Well, and you know I think that's probably going to go a long way to the eventual answer we come up with is that. There is a difference between something that you feel um, is you, right? If you feel you're a developer versus if your career is development. Um, If you feel it's you, then of course your career may or may not be in it, most likely will be. Um, But then again, there are those people who are simply developers professionally and may not even care about it that much, just like we see with doctors and lawyers, right? Oh, I've known many of those that... um they come in, they put in their time, and they leave, and they don't try to learn anything new. They don't try to work on problems at home. Yeah, I'm one of those guys. I, I go home, and I have an algorithm kind of gnawing at the back of my head, or I'm, I'm thinking about a problem that I was working on during the day, and I'd be like, oh, wait, if I try this, it, it'll solve all my problems. So I'm always thinking about that stuff in the back of my mind without even realizing it sometimes. It's like being an entrepreneur. It's it's, it's hard to turn it off at the end of the day just because it's 5 o'clock. You, you may even go home. You may stop working, but it doesn't mean your brain isn't still there. Exactly. So you mentioned a couple different things. You mentioned developer, whether it's software developer, whether um, uh, we have app developers and uh, software architect. Are these things... Are these jobs the same thing, or are they different? Are there are there, you know is there a difference between a software developer and an app developer? Um, there's definitely a difference between an architect and a software developer. Um, some people choose the term software engineer, um, which is usually a more formalized 
thing because engineering has uh, practices and standards and it strives to be repeatable. You know, if they, they build a bridge, they want to make sure it doesn't fall down. If they build a, a home, they want to make sure it meets the specifications and they can do that repeatable every time. Um, app developers might be software developers that specifically target mobile devices or specific, specifically target a certain framework or specific device because that's where they spend all their time. So they're very knowledgeable maybe in that area, but might not be very knowledgeable in some of the other areas. Or maybe it's something they, they learned on their own and dabbled with, um, and they might not have a depth of knowledge of some of the more, um, not necessarily theoretical stuff, but the more uh, varied like data structures and algorithms that people who have studied computer science in school might be familiar with. You know, mentioning studying this in school, this is one of the reasons I'm asking um, this question of what does it mean to be a developer? Because I would venture to say that there are a lot of people out there that would like to develop. And uh, we hear the age old of excuses of, uh, you know, that's not what I do or, you know, yeah, I know a little bit of code, but I'm not a developer. And there's this tendency to diminish one's position. Right. And so maybe you're not professionally employed in that field of development and, and maybe you want to be, maybe you don't want to be, maybe you just want to work on an independent project. I think like any profession and like any, even into sports and any pursuit, really, there are people who go for it and there are people who are sitting on that fence saying, I know I should be going for it, but right. And that's the type of, those are the type of people that I want to address today because what you know what what's holding someone back why would somebody not be a developer if they know code and i think that those are some of the maybe mental or emotional hang-ups that people have are there people who know code who are not developers um yeah i think that there are and there are also people that want to be developers and don't know code but a lot of those people and and i'm not talking to the people who 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 say loud and proud I don't know computers you know you tried right. I've done help desk stuff you try to explain something to somebody and they go well well I don't know computer stuff that that just confuses me right click here I would want right click oh why do I need to know that right we're not talking to those people right they're probably um, not listening um, that probably falls into the same category as some of the people who say uh, I'm not good at math I, I don't like math I don't want to do that I'm not saying the development relies heavily on math um, one of the things like if you do it in school they usually train you in a lot of math and physics and, and things like that and chemistry because they have algorithms and they have functions and they have uh, formulas and so you start thinking about variables and substituting variables and performing these operations because a lot of times when you're developing software or writing code um, you have to think in abstractions. You know, I'm not going to go and draw every pixel on the screen. I'm going to call this function. I'm going to call this other chunk of code that goes and does a whole other set of operations and draws the box. So I'm not going to draw every pixel in the box. I'm going to call something to draw the box. So you have to be able to hold these different abstractions in your mind that, you know, hey, I have all these different building blocks and I need to you know, sometimes I'm diving down and I'm building the building block up from scratch. So if I'm told to draw a box, I can draw a box. But other times 
um, you're, you're at a higher level and you're putting these different boxes and blocks together to do something more meaningful um, and building up into a you know more functionality seems seems like you're you're stumbling stumbling a little bit towards what you know uh, me individually to be too right we've had conversations where um, I, I like to think of myself as a logical and rational person and I like to know how things work so when I sit down to work on a code project which I'm I would say I'm not a developer I'm, I'm not I don't do it professionally and I don't do it that often personally enough um, to say that I do I know certain languages eh, sorta right but I'm that type of person where you and I get in a conversation and all of a sudden, you or whoever I'm talking to just wants to knock me out. It's like, okay, you, you say, well, use this particular thing, and and you don't have to write every pixel to the screen. And then me, being that too overly rational person, says, yeah, but, well, how is that function writing every single thing to the screen, right? And I think that's another group of people who sometimes just want to know too much. They're that true academic of, yeah, but I need to know how everything works, and really... <laughs> We kind of, no matter what it is, whether it's software development or something else, we kind of need to just give up on that, don't we? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm definitely that personality. I want to know all the pieces. But, you know, at some point, you have to acknowledge uh, what's worth writing and what's not. So, Windows and Apple, uh, Mac OS, those are the two dominant operating systems out there and Linux. So the, the, those are the three. Um, sure, there are people that write hobbyist operating systems. Um, if you're going to write, hey, I'm going to go out and write a new app. Are you going to invent a phone, invent the operating system, write the networking stack that talks to the cell phone towers, write the OS for your device, write the libraries to draw to the screen and all of that? Or are you maybe going to use an operating system in a device that's already out there and just use some of the libraries that they provide to write your app? Um, they say about scientists standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, they've done all the stuff, the hard work for us. Operating systems are, are pretty much there. Uh, programming languages are kind of there. I mean, yes, people invent new ones all the time. A lot of times those are people in um, research computer scientists in universities or hobbyist developers or occasionally industry people, but it's not something you need to do just to write your new app. You, you know, understanding all the ins and outs of, of syntax and um, compilation. So, you know, there's libraries out there to draw graphics. There's OpenGL and DirectX. They already exist. There's no reason to write new graphics libraries for the most part for the average developer. Um, there's networking stacks out there on the Linux, uh, built into Linux um, and through the C libraries or C++ libraries, built into Windows you know, or .NET, built into Java. There's no need to re-implement those. It's already done. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. At some point you have to say to yourself, well, there's some wheels. I, I can maybe make a motorcycle or I can make a car or a truck, but I can build on these pieces that are already there and put them together in a different way. I mean, uh, just look at Taco Bell. How many different ways can you layer meat and cheese and other <laughs> ingredients? Right. And that, well, that's not to say, right? Just because, <laughs> and, and on the flip side of that, just because Taco Bell makes a quote unquote taco doesn't mean that Del Taco or some other chain shouldn't go into business, right? So if you see something, we're not, you know, I don't right. think we're saying <laughs> don't make the wheel better. 
if you can make the wheel better, it's... That's not what I'm saying. At right. some point, though, you've spent how many hours studying wheels to make an improvement in a wheel? If you're just learning, um, go ahead and use the wheels that are there. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So Let's for- just build, build on... Like, so the first generation languages happened back in the 50s and 60s. They were like rewiring the computers if they wanted to switch from adding to subtracting. Like they had to rewire the circuits. They had plug boards and they would physically rewire things. Then we had assembly languages where we could tell it, hey, I want to go out to memory and pull a value and put it into the the processor and pull a different value and put it into a different spot in the processor and add them together and put it back in memory. All the original programs that were written in assembly had to do that all themselves. Oh, I want to compare two values and then go somewhere and then go uh, pull pull like a letter out of pull a value out of memory and draw it to the the video memory. Oh, I just drew a letter on the screen. So they had to build functions to write letters to the screen. Yeah. I, I don't think you want to do that. No, you don't want to do that. And and what I'm going to say, don't don't jump on it because I know we've talked about it before and we'll talk about it again in the future. So I'm not right. trying to change the, the flow, but we've talked about frameworks and libraries before. Well, and one of the I, difficulties people have is there are so many frameworks and so many libraries in certain areas that, it, and again, we'll talk about this on another episode, but it becomes so hard to say, all right, which am I going to, which am I going to jump in on? Well, I think that's a different point, actually. What I, what I was getting at was, you know, we built on the assembly into, or we built on the wiring things into assembly. We built on assembly into basic where we could say, hey, I've got a variable called, you, you know, um, name, and I can put a, a name in there, a string. And they built on that. And you, but you had to write tons and tons of code to do anything in basic. And we built on that to make like C. And we built on that to make Java and C sharp. And, and now we've got, you know, JavaScript and some higher level languages like Haskell and Ruby. So we've built on top of previous languages and previous technologies every generation of language. You know, we're we're fourth or fifth generation languages now that give you all these features. I can draw an image to the screen. I can request a file from the network or pull a file off the file system. There's no need to go back down that low level anymore. Right. If you can't if you can't do it better, um, then then why not? Except as sport, right? Except just to learn and to play with it. Why? Sure. Yeah. Um, to go, and I keep flipping the conversation to go flip side back and forth, but we've talked about people who, you know, reinvent the wheel. And we've talked about people who are overwhelmed by the number of wheels that are out there. What about someone who doesn't code at all and just uses third party tools? maybe some graphical tool, but doesn't actually do code, just maybe even a drag-and-drop developer. Where do they fit into this overall scheme? Well, um, there has to be some understanding. You have to understand what's happening. Hey, I'm running a program. What's happening? You know, even if you're drag-and-drop one um, using, like, Windows Forms or uh, Eclipse for, for Java, and you draw a window, like... Uh, you know, a window or a frame and you draw a text box and you draw a button. When I run it, what happens? What, where does the code go? And you have to go and have to actually understand a little bit of the basics of the language you're using. What's a variable? What's a, you know, what's a for loop or an if 
or, or a switch, what, what, what are those? Um, how do I organize my code and how do I call other pieces of code? And why do I want to do that? Um, you know, I, like for instance, JavaScript. JavaScript is a language a lot of people get into. Um, I know a lot of uh, kids and, and even, you know, teens and people in their 20s or 30s or 40s have gotten into making web pages and then looking at other people's HTML, looking at other people's JavaScript. Um, when people start doing that, usually you end up with a giant JavaScript file. It's got like three to 4,000 lines of stuff where they're you know, showing and hiding stuff when they click buttons. But <laughs> we, as we, you, We've all been there at one time or another. As you evolve and you get better and you start learning more, um, Angular or you're looking at Require.js, which encourages you to use different modules and split up code. You, you start having smaller files that do just what they need to do, and you have a better understanding of things. You don't just lump it into one big thing. So, But that's different than reinventing the wheel, right? Because Right. It's just learning what your language can do. If you pick a language, learn the language. Learn the features of the language. Because you know, when I first started learning Java, it was... It was crazy how many libraries were out there reinventing things that were built into the J the Java language. There were libraries out there to draw images built into the Java library. You know, <laughs> things out there to do network requests built into the Java library. But so why do why do people do that? What what do you think the motivation behind that is? Does somebody really think? I mean, are were they doing it better than the built-in, or was it? I think it was a mixture of both. I think some of it was they didn't spend the time to learn the language they were using. You know, know your tools. Um, some of it they didn't take the time to look, and some of them thought they were doing it better. But, you know, if you have two guys writing this one thing, and then you have, on the other hand, it's built into the language, it's, you know, tested and developed and used by who knows how many people, you know, sometimes I go with, the built-in version um, unless there's a need that I find that it can't do and I found something else that can replace it but I usually stick with the built-in one when needed. So I know you were using Java as an example there but previously you had mentioned JavaScript and oh, yeah. we, we've had Sorry. a lot of conversation. <laughs> no, I know it's good because <laughs> I have this in my notes to go into because we've had plenty of side conversations about that. Um, you know, and, and here's here's how I'll paraphrase my opening stance on it that I've I know you're sick of hearing me say. Twenty years ago, people picked on me and said, "Oh, you're not a developer. Oh, JavaScript's not a real language. It's just a scripting language, and that's not real." Um, and then we were the other day um, conversing and and kind of admiring the fact of how many uh, full blown software developers and engineers are clamoring to learn JavaScript. Does this kind of dichotomy exist within programming still of certain languages are good enough and others aren't? Um, yeah, there, well, it's a little different. Um, I'm more in the en enterprise field. So I, I, I deal with a lot of commercial software and bigger businesses. So there are hobbyist languages and there are uh, enterprise languages. So usually if it's a bigger company, you're going to see um, in the database level, you're going to see TSQL through the Microsoft SQL server, or you're going to see PLSQL through Oracle. 
occasionally you'll see MySQL, but usually that's not in the enterprise level. Usually that's uh, like for someone at their home or a small business. Right, unless you're in the tech field, and then right. it's going to be more common, especially when used in conjunction with right. a um, non-relational database on top of it. And, and that would be something like uh, Mongo or Hadoop, which are, are emerging in the enterprise level right. as well. But like for a lot of the web stuff, most enterprises use either like .NET or Java, but slowly um, things like Node.js and ExpressJS have been growing for middle tier. And that's it, all because no uh, server-side server JavaScript. Side. Yeah. And that has grown from hobbyist things like the, uh, Hobbyists and startups have started using it because they can develop code quickly and um, it started to gain some adoption on the enterprise side. But not all enterprises will use, I mean, all things. Like, I know that Haskell has a real small percentage of people that use it. Uh, it seems like to me in the industry. Uh, F Sharp is kind of a, it's, it's a cool functional language like Haskell, but it doesn't have a lot of development an enterprise that I can see. Um, Lisp has been around for ever, uh, Scheme and C Lisp, um, but I've not really encountered much of it in in my career. Uh, I think it's there. I think a lot of it in university and hobbies, but I'm sure that some companies use it as their primary development platform. that How, was the language out of the '60s. So why does AI and Emacs? Why but, does a language move from hobbyist to enterprise, and and what's the barrier? Right, I'm sure there are a lot of hobbyists out there that have a solution that they think may be valid for enterprise, but you know they may face a situation where if you walk in and say, "All right, folks, we built this thing with JavaScript, or we built this thing with, um, you know, we built this thing with one of my favorites, PHP." Depending on what type of business you're talking to, they may laugh you out of the room and you're like, no, but it, it, it works and it's secure and it's just that and the other. Yeah, I don't think you can say PHP is just hobbyist because I'm pretty sure Facebook, Facebook. was originally built on PHP. Yeah, but it, you're right. Come on. Before, If there weren't <laughs> Facebook, if there weren't Facebook, everyone would oh, – okay, not there are some other sites that, that use it as well that are really right. massive. But if there weren't those key few sites and that's what they, because having come from the hobbyist world, had chosen – then we, you know, ASP may not have been dying the slow, horrible death. It's dying. Um, I think that, and a good example of something that moved from the hobbyist world to more enterprise is Ruby. Ruby had been around off and on for for years, but it kind of exploded onto the scene a lot with Ruby on Rails, which was a uh, like a set of libraries and frameworks built on top of Ruby. And that like drew a lot of interest and had a lot of people looking at it again because of like how quick you could develop and support it. I'll but, tell you, I agree with you because Ruby surprised me. Um, here's we, we we go back right. I originally I'm old school. Um, so are you? I, <laughs> I'm I, older school. <laughs> you're older school. I started programming in Basic, just like half of the people from the '60s, '70s, and '80s will say. And so did I. then when I move into web stuff, right, and I'm, I'm using JavaScript and I'm using PHP and before all of that, I was using Perl um, just through a regular CGI interface. And I had never heard of Ruby. And I'm not saying that this is going to be everyone's experience. I was I was probably sheltering myself from it accidentally, but I'd never even heard of Ruby until this whole massive Ruby on Rails explosion happens. 
And it's, you know, I, I was left scratching my head saying, what happened here and why is everyone over in this camp now? Um, it was ease of development and ease of, like, change. Like, you could change your tables and your, your pages and reload and, you know, it would help restructure your database and your middle tier. And you could write a couple of lines of code and it would, you know, build some great pages to enter data and update data and stuff. So now all just, the folks that have no idea that what we're talking about and are really just tuning in to say, okay, I'm on, I know this one language and they're not talking about this one, or I know I, I want to learn a language. I want to go back to school for it. I want to take a course online. Uh, you know, they're listening to this and they may not know these languages, but, but again, I just want to remind everyone that the, the key point here is if you have an idea, if you have that ability, you can be a developer. It's not like you have to do this professionally for a living, right? Right. Um, well, there are so many people that start just at their home um, playing around. Um, even last year and, and this year, they did uh, like the year of code. They had big pushes to get people to go around and learn how to code. Um, I think um, like different celebrities were doing commercials and um, politicians just... It, it was the year of code, and they were really pushing people to start learning it. Google does a summer of code. There's free websites to, to learn, like codeacademy.com. You can learn HTML and JavaScript and command line and PHP. Uh, Microsoft has the Microsoft Virtual Academy. It's free to sign up, and you can take classes on, like, Windows and, and IIS and .NET and all sorts of languages. They even have classes on, like, making games. Um, you can, you know, there are people who are really interested in games. So you can go get Unity or the Unreal Engine and build games for free. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of my university students have been looking at that. And I'm working with a group of my students right now who are doing a project and came to me and were asking about that. And I was, we, you know, we were talking about, you know, a lot of these engines now are free to use up to a certain amount of revenue. And then after that, they either revenue share or a flat fee. And um, I mean, just the eyes light up in these students and they say, you know, really like I, so I can get yeah, up to like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. There's no licensing fee up to like a hundred grand on some of these or 50 grand. So once you make 50 grand in revenue, then it's time to come right. back and and I want to say to even the unreal, right? These big engines, they all know of uh, unity, like you're mentioning a hundred thousand unreal, I think was something pretty low, like three or five thousand, but then it was only five percent revenue share. And it's kind of like, what well, you know, that's that's doable. That's doable for a small developer, right? There, um, there, there's a p bunch of engines I, I used to play around with. I did a bunch. Um, I did some 2D iOS apps using Cocos 2D, um, and they have versions that let you write for Android or or Windows Phone or Windows Desktop or or Mac. Um, I know if you have an Apple computer, you can get Xcode for free. Uh, you can plug in your phone or your iPad if you have one, and you can code those and write apps for them for free. Uh, you can't distribute them on the store unless you pay like a hundred bucks, but you, you can do that. Um, if you have an Android device, you can download the Android development kit, and you can plug in your device, and you can write Android games for that. You can get Eclipse for free, and you can, you know, write Java apps. I'm glad there's so many tools out there that you don't have to spend any money for. 
Um, there's so many resources and tutorials on how to do it. There's open source games and apps that you can download and look at and run and play with them and run them again and see what happened. And that's going to be true for anything, including games. But, you know, I'm glad you're mentioning this. Um, I have a list of one, two, three, four, five bullet points here. And um, what I'd like to do is play a game with you, if that's okay. It's not a it's not a very fancy game. It's not that it's not that fun. Don't get too excited. Crickets. I like games. Okay. Well, that that's that's about the appropriate <laughs> enthusiasm lo- enthusiasm level. Multinew Media will be right back after this break. Come, 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 come. I have a list of one, two, three, four, five bullet points here, and um, what I'd like to do is play a game with you, if that's okay. It's not a it's not a very fancy game. It's not that it's not that fun. Don't get too excited. Crickets. I like games. Okay, well that that's that's about the appropriate <laughs> enthusiasm lo- enthusiasm level. Of, I'm a yeah, gamer. Okay. I like games. All right. Well, this is not that type of game. I have five bullet points, and each one is a factor that I think. Uh, limits us from creating more developers or uh, development culture or people, what they use as something to not get into development. So I'm going to run through these five bullet points and I want you to give me a quick reply back because I know you have a good answer for each one of these. The first bullet point was where you are already at. I think one of the big things, and this was me back in the 1990s, uh, one reason people don't develop is the cost of development software. What would your rebuttal be to that? There are so many free tools. Microsoft offers community editions of Visual Studio that you can download and run for free. They have for code that runs on Mac, Linux, and Windows. There's Eclipse that runs on Mac, Linux, and Windows. If you're on uh, Linux and Mac, you can get like MonoDevelop or Sharp Develop. You can fire up a text editor on any machine and write web pages or JavaScript. Um, there are tutorials. Uh, online classes, YouTube videos, MIT, you know, virtual classes that you can watch, like from MIT or from Stanford. You can get free tutorials and free demos and run them and play them and tweak them. Um, there's open source apps that you can go and open them up and look at what how they do things. There's no real financial cost if you spend the time yourself. So now, there are some people that can't motivate themselves and they're right. better if they go to a school or they go to class and they have that obligation. But if you're motivated enough to put the time in, there's no real cost other so, than your time. So times have changed and all that's available. What about the next one here? The cost of the test environments, like, uh, you know, to, to uh, test across different devices. So emulators, servers, staging servers, those types of things. Um, well, most people don't think about servers and stuff. If they're making a web page or they're making a game, they might think about devices. And um, and for that, you can usually use virtual machines 
So if you're testing different browsers, you can usually get a virtual machine to do it. There's online services like browser shots that will look at web pages in a bunch of different browsers and send you screenshots. There's emulators for if you're on a Mac, there's emulators for the Mac OS or you know for the iOS and iPads and iPhones. There's emulators for Androids. So if you don't have a, an Android tablet or an Android phone, you can still run them through an emulator and see what they look like. Um, if you're just starting out, that's a fine place. If you need servers and a network to test on, there's free virtual machine software. VirtualBox works on all the OSs, Linux, Mac, Windows. Windows has built-in Hyper-V. Um, Linux can run um, VMware, so can Mac and Windows. Like th There are many different ways to set up multiple machines and networks and all that using one laptop or one computer in your home. What about the time involved with learning code or to keep up with changes in code? What if that's inhibiting people? Um, I would say pick one language and stick with it for a while. Uh, the biggest thing about developing is learning how to think. Once you learn how to think and how to, as a developer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, you should know how to think. Go to university for the stop. other one, right? Yeah. But once you know how to think full stop, you should learn how to think as a developer or think about things through code. Um, once, I mean, if, if you can think about stuff via code or, or as a developer, it doesn't really matter what the language is. Usually, you can swap out the language and pick up a new one, the little nuances between the two, relatively quickly. You have to know, oh, I want to, you know, loop over all the elements in this list and do something with each one and then draw them as boxes on the screen. And, oh, I just made Pinterest. Well, now I want to swap <laughs> the language to something completely different. I'm still going to loop over all the things and still draw them to the screen as boxes. So what about someone from there who says, okay, and this is a fourth bullet point of, okay, but I'm bad at logic, I'm bad at math, I'm bad at rational thinking. Okay. Especially the bad at math one. I think that's the one we hear the most. Well, um, the only way to get better at something is to practice it. And the only way to confront something you're afraid of, if you're afraid of something, is to actually do it. Um, I mean, Give okay, you're bad at math. Go to Khan Academy, right? You were talking about the MIT classes that are also available yeah. free. They're not go just to programming. Go classes online. Go watch some YouTube videos. Go to Khan Academy. Go um, Coursera, to Udemy. local school and say, hey, can I audit this night class? They, sometimes you can sit in there for free. Um, read some books. Try some examples online. Do what you need to do to get better at it if this is what you want to do. Right. If if it's not what you want to do, but you have some amazing idea that you think is going to change the world and you just need someone to write it, there's lots of websites where you can post looking for developers. There's lots of websites where you can post your idea or find someone to help you with it. But don't don't think if you have an amazing idea, the only way to fulfill it is to write it yourself. And Sometimes a developer can, an experienced developer can talk with you and go, well, that's great, or it might not be feasible because of this, or hey, let's go look and see if someone else has done it, but you, you know. And that's a good point because you don't have to be perfect uh, all the way around at the start. And, and the last point here really builds upon the bad at logic or bad at rational thinking. And it's what I'm saying is that people get frustration. So I'm going to have to describe this one. People get frustrations with data centric thinking. So it's, it's hard to think in terms of functions and object oriented programming sometimes. And people find themselves getting frustrated and giving up. And 
you know, I'll, I'll even give an example. The other day I was getting frustrated. I, I had switched from Excel to Google Docs for something, and I was trying to rip the date out of a timestamp. And it just, you know, if you know anything about spreadsheets, you know dates are stored in integers. And it just failed to dawn on me until I read the manual, right? RTFM, folks. Until I read the manual, it failed to dawn on me that if I want to rip the date out, all I had to do was was pull the integer. Just use an integer function to see what the uh, integer of the date was, right? But that type of stuff frustrates a lot of people, and I find they give up because of that rather than find it as a challenge. What about the people who really could do it, really have it in them, but find they may have not quite the emotional coping skills to deal with the frustrations of, of learning a logical uh, field like like programming? Does not compute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Um so look, I, I, I'll, I've been a developer a long time, and I've written in a lot of languages, and I don't think I'm going to invent the next Facebook. I, I don't. I mean, if an amazing idea comes to me, cool. But I realize that most likely, you know, when I'm old and I die, everything I've ever written will probably be upgraded, rewritten, and removed at some point. And I will have nothing lasting, you know, that I wrote and left and, and set aside. Like, that that's a sobering thought for some people. When I write code professionally at work, and one of the things we have to do is we have to do code reviews, peer reviews. We have to share our code and everything we wrote and, and the comments and, and the logic behind it with our coworkers. And they have to look and critique it. So I'm, many times I'm, you know, I get feedback. Uh, Why did you do it this way? What made you do that? Th this is dumb. You should do it this other way. Uh, you you broke the coding standard. You you didn't name it right. Uh, it's got a bug. It doesn't work right. Um, you know, you have to be able to accept criticism. You you have. Uh, they call it egoless programming. They're, you know. You might be having a problem with something you wrote, or you might be getting feedback on something you wrote, or something might not be working right, but it's not you that's a failure. You have to understand that and accept that and be able to under, to to recognize that, that nobody's perfect at what they do, and it, it's not you. That, oh, I thought I did that. Oh, uh, I, I should try something different. Um, but... You know, I, I usually tell people, you know, I've gotten stuck before. I've gotten stuck for like three weeks on like one problem. And typically it goes, I try something, uh, and I, you know, I'll try it a couple different ways in the editor without, without going anywhere. And if I can't get that in about 15 minutes, I might go online. Now there's a distinction as a, as a higher end developer from going on Google and just Googling it and copying, pasting code in, because that's not something I do. I usually look for an answer and try to understand why that answer might work. I, I, you know, it's not strictly copy paste and oh, cool, I fixed it. I try to get some understanding behind any answers I see. There, there definitely are developers out there who just Google how do I do this, copy paste, put it in their code, run it. Okay, cool. Next problem, copy. You know, how do I do this? Copy paste. Run it. Cool. Get next thing. How do I do the third thing? Copy, paste, put it in. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, usually I'm trying to deal with a very specific problem with a very specific language or library 
and I've tried everything I know. So I go look online. There's resources like Stack Overflow, uh, CodePlex, um, you know, forums for the language or, or, or for the uh, library. And then I usually try to reach out to other people. There are local meetups. There's pretty much if you go to meetup.com in any city or state, there's probably a, a, like a developer meetup of some kind. I know in Tampa, we have Java, JavaScript, Ruby, .NET. We have data engineers, cloud people, just normal tech meetups, Microsoft meetups. Uh, there's an Apple iOS meetup. Any language you can think of, there's probably a meetup for it where other like-minded people are in the town that you can go and talk to and say, hey, I've tried this. What can I do? But biggest thing is don't give up. I think that's a good life lesson that that we can end this segment on because, uh, you know, whether you're going to be a developer or whether you're in new media or whether you're in education or wherever you fall uh, professionally, that's that's kind of the the idea of don't give up. You you can you can do better without being a failure for having the ability to do better. Right. We're not going to hit perfect. No one's going to hit perfect at any point. And uh, I think that's a great life lesson to, to live on, especially when it comes to data, because, folks, if you think we haven't failed uh, just the other week, Chris, you pointed out to me why my CSS was failing miserably because of a ab- accidental a link in my HTML. Uh, I've done this stuff for how long? And, um, you know, it just took talking to someone else. And the second I said the problem, you lit up and said, hey, I know what that problem is right there without you even continuing. And so it's important. Check with other people. Talk to other people. Don't wall yourself off. That's just that's a recipe for disaster. And we weren't even looking at code. You were just talking about it. Yeah, we were just talking. It was just, hey, I'm having this weird problem. And, you know, your eyes lit up and said, I know exactly what it is. And, you know, it may not be that situation. Sometimes it comes from a book, sometimes from a website, sometimes just from a video of someone walking through something on YouTube or on lynda.com or, you know, not trying to plug anybody, but but those sources. And uh, I, I think that's perfectly good. So thank you, Chris, for joining me. And uh, I think that'll conclude this segment and, and we'll uh, we'll just take it from here. All right. Thank you. Sorry, I can't come over now. I'm busy recording next week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.